Paul is writing to a church that had drifted away from the things that Paul taught and from the, the way that Paul would do things. And so this church in Corinth is now embracing a Christianity where it's all about them. So they had come to an embrace a faith that was the, uh, probably summarized best by saying, we, we think that Jesus came to come alongside of us to help us to live out our dreams, our aspirations, achieve our goals, and in, in, in one sense to help us live for us just at a whole new level. And so Paul's had to deal with that. And uh, I, I would say probably on the outside they were praying, thy kingdom come, but on the inside their heart was really my kingdom come. So Paul deals with that. So much so it became such a problem that Paul had to write there in your outline. He says, he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. And and, and each week we've underlined no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And Paul reminds them of the great cost that Christ paid, and then our response is that we now live for him. So Paul has to tell them that it's about living for Jesus. And uh, he'd been dealing with that for the first seven chapters. That's kind of the theme of it. And I just pulled out one verse. I could have pulled out many. So if, if, if a professing Christian is living for themselves and not for Jesus, how would that be best demonstrated? Well, one of the things that we we discovered, I'll give you the punchline, same as we talked about a few weeks ago, but chapters 8 and 9, Paul deals with this issue, and it's demonstrated by Christians living for themselves is manifested by their not giving to the cause of Christ. It was a problem then, and it's certainly a, a problem today. So in our story, it had all started about a year earlier as Paul was writing the letter that we would call 1 Corinthians. Paul ended that letter by talking about an offering that they were receiving. And there in your outline, here's what it says. It says, now, about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money and keeping with his income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your, send them with your gift to Jerusalem. And uh, underline Jerusalem. So this is a special offering that, that Paul was receiving to send to the church that was in Jerusalem. You see, in Jerusalem, where everybody was Jewish, if you became a Christian, you'd be immediately excommunicated from the temple, from the synagogue. And um, what that would mean would be that nobody at the temple, uh, nobody in business would sell you anything, nobody would buy from you, your family could have nothing to do with you, and so you'd become destitute very quickly. So Paul wanted to raise a special offering to send to help those who were suffering there in Jerusalem. Now it's also important to note, you want to write this down, this offering was above their normal giving. This is not the normal giving that goes to the support of the local ministry. This was a special offering that was going to Jerusalem. Sadly, we discovered that although Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians uh, a year prior, now we find that the, the Corinthians are not doing their part. So I'm going to pick it up in chapter 8, and we can't go through everything we talked about last time, but a couple, uh, highlight a couple of things, verses 1 and 2. He says, now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So the Macedonian churches, which are to the north of Corinth, were going through a difficult time, but they jumped on board with this offering. 
Paul is using the Macedonians as an example for the Corinthians. When it says the grace of God was in them, what's taking place is that God was doing something in the hearts of the Macedonian believers that caused them to want to participate in giving to God's cause or the cause of God. And uh, then we went down to verse 5 to find out why, and it says, and this, not as we had expected, but they first gave, and hopefully you've underlined that from last time, they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. And so Paul observed the reason that they were giving themselves to this offering there in your outline, that God's grace manifested in a desire to give to God's cause because unlike the Corinthians, the Macedonians gave themselves to God first. You want to write that down. And so the, the Macedonians gave themselves to God, so they were glad to jump on board with that, whatever it was that God was doing. So they had the heart that just says, Lord, whatever you want to do. Sadly, for the, the believers in Corinth, it was not about what God wanted to do. They had embraced a faith that, again, held that God came, or Jesus came to help us live for our dreams, our goals, our aspirations, help us to accomplish our dreams and all, and all of that. It wasn't about jumping on board with what God was doing. It was about God jumping on board with what we are doing. So, God, so Paul takes the first part of this chapter and he tells the Corinthians that they need to jump on board, that they need to participate in this offering. We made it down last time to about verse 13, so I'm going to pick it up there. This first part goes real fast and then we'll slow down when we get into chapter 9. But verse 13, as Paul talks about this offering, he says, for this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. And then verse 15, he says, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. So the idea is you have some, so you help out them. Sometimes they might have some, they'll help out you, and uh, everybody will be able to, to make it. So here, um, in this, in this uh, section here, Paul, it's important to say that, that um, and, and what, I'm going to, what I'm going to share with you comes from my perspective and my understanding as, a, as, a, um, as many of you know, a right-wing conservative, evangelical, fundamental, gun-toting, full-on prepper. So, <laughs> but other that, than that, I'm very open-minded. So, so we'll just go. So I'm just going to share some perspective here. Uh, Paul here, as he says in verse 13, he says, he says, this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. Paul, Paul is not here suggesting that we're going to redistribute wealth. That's not his idea. This offering is not to give a life of ease to those who are in Jerusalem while making it difficult for the people in Corinth. The people in Jerusalem are just trying to survive to make it because, they, again, they've been excommunicated and they are impoverished. So anything that you can do is a great help. Now, why do I say this? If you're like me and uh, you've gone to college and you, you take some type of religious class, it's not uncommon for a professor to say that, that uh, socialism is true Christianity. And they'll pull out a verse, and this is typically the verse they'll pull out, verse 13. And they'll say, this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, and that their abundance may also become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. So some take this and say, 
this teaches that socialism is true Christianity because what socialism does, it takes from, from those who have and helps those who, who don't have as much and so that there can be equality. Well, socialism and Christianity are actually diametrically opposed. And, and here, here's how this works. And uh, just, just so that, that you see this in case you ever hear, Christianity at its heart, and I want you to write this down, at its heart says, what's mine is yours. It's something that takes place in the heart. I want to give because, because I love. God's doing something in my heart. What's mine is yours. Socialism is the exact opposite. Socialism says, what's yours is mine. And I'm going to mandate that you give it. Anytime you remove the choice, it's no longer Christian, uh, and, and the socialism removes that choice. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, verse 16 and 17, as uh, we move on, it says, but thanks be to God. Now, this is very important that you get this however your Bible says it, but thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of of Titus, verse 17, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. The concern that Titus has for the believers in Corinth, because they are not participating in the offering, God has placed a concern in the heart of Titus, who is a traveling companion of Paul. He's placed that concern in Titus on their behalf. And so his heart is to help them participate in this offering, and that's something that God has done in his heart. So, uh, and again, on their behalf, so apparently God thinks this is important. So Titus, who is a traveling companion of Paul, is going to be coming to Corinth. So in verse 18 it says, we have sent along with him the brother whose fame, whose fame in all things of the gospel has spread through all the churches, and not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches, underline that, to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself, and to show our readiness. Uh, this person is unnamed, we don't know who, who he is, the church knew who he was, but this one was appointed by the church. Titus is appointed by Paul, he's gladly accepted that, somebody else is coming and he's been appointed with the, by the churches. Pick it up in verse 20, and he says, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. So the idea is that this other person is coming with us so that nobody can say, you know, Paul took the money and he ran, there's going to be some accountability there. Verse 22, we have sent with them, that's Titus and this other, other person we don't know, our brother whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things and now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. And as for the brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. So you have uh, two that we don't know. They're coming on behalf of the churches. Paul is sending Titus on behalf of him. Verse 24 with your pen in hand. He says, therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love, however your Bible says it, and our reason for boasting about you. The proof of their love, Paul is talking about taking up or receiving an offering to take to Jerusalem. So here, write this down, Paul considered participation in the offering as proof of their love. 
Now there's no chapter and verses in the original writing, it just continues on. So Paul just continues, chapter 9, verse 1. It is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia, which is the area of Corinth, has been prepared since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Paul had boasted about how excited the Corinthians were to participate in this offering a year before. That caused the Macedonians to jump on board and say, we want to participate. Sadly, the Corinthians didn't participate and uh, so Paul used their original excitement for the offering to challenge the Macedonians. Now he's using the faithfulness of the Macedonians to to, uh, challenge the, the Corinthians. Paul says it's superfluous for me to write to you about this, and he talks about about your zeal for the for this offering. Uh, Paul is using here some sarcasm, and what I appreciate about Paul in First Corinthians and Second Corinthians is that there are times when he's a little bit sarcastic, which makes me feel better uh, about myself. So, um, verse three and four, he says, "But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you." may not be made empty in this case, so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and, and, and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. And the idea is we've been saying nice things about you and how you guys are really jumped on board with this offering, but if you don't, we are all going to have a very awkward moment as they show up and they did and, and you didn't. Well, verse 5, he says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they should go on ahead to you, that's the Titus and the two we don't know about, and arrange beforehand, and I have underlined your previously promised bountiful gift, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Not affected by covetousness. A previously promised bountiful gift. The Corinthians had made some financial commitments to this offering, and uh, they've shied away from, from those commitments. And so Paul's reminding them. And then in verse 5, that, that last line I put there in your outline, he says that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. And uh, here you have the Macedonians who had given themselves to God first. They were doing this out of generosity, even though they were currently impoverished they wanted to participate in what God was doing. Paul's looking at the Corinthians and he's concerned that if they, they give, it might be out of uh, being grudging, grudgingly. So uh, they might give, but, but uh, they're not going to be too excited about it. So he reminds them, that's what we're going to do this over time. So it, it, uh, it's not out of a grudging, uh, grudging heart. So Paul says you need to participate in this offering. It's what God is doing and you need to participate. So for me, from this point on, this is where the plot thickens. And I've talked about all of that so that we can come to, to this part, which I, I really get excited about. Verse 6, he says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Again, Paul is talking about this, this uh, offering that they are collecting to send to Jerusalem. And he uses the illustration of sowing and reaping and we might say planting and, and harvesting. And he, he likens the giving to a planting, a sowing into God's purpose. 
and uh, there's going to be a harvest, and those who who sow a little are going to have a little harvest, but for those who sow abundantly, there's going to be an, an abundant harvest. And so there's going to be a harvest. So write this down. Um, I reap what I plant. And again, this is speaking about specifically putting into God's kingdom. In this case, it was financially. And it's important when you say, I reap what I plant, that we always reap what we plant. If I plant corn, I don't get back wheat. Pretty straightforward. And so it's okay to expect that when you plant into God's kingdom, that harvest is going to come back financially because you always get what you plant. That's all what you always get as you reap. Now, what I, what I like about this verse or what I, what I wish they would add in this verse, I'm going to read it from a literal translation. And the, the literal translation brings out something that many of our, our, our translations miss. It says there in your outline, and this, he who is sowing sparingly, sparingly also shall reap. But he who is sowing in blessings, I don't know if I underlined that for you, but if I didn't underline that, in blessings, in blessings shall also shall reap. So the idea is that what you plant in God's kingdom is what's going to come back. So if God has blessed you, you you have a job, you have income, and you take that blessing, and you plant that back into God's kingdom, God says in, if you sow in blessings, it will be in blessings that it comes back. So God gives you back what you've put in. Very, very straight, straight, straightforward. Now, again, God uses the illustration of sowing and reaping, planting and harvesting. So here's what we need to understand about sowing and reaping. Write this down. The harvest is always greater than the seed sown. The harvest is always greater than the seed sown. If I plant a kernel of corn, then I go through the season of waiting. When the harvest comes up, I don't reap a kernel of corn. I reap a stalk of corn filled with ears of corn, filled with kernels of corn because the harvest is always greater than the seed sown. And God won't let anybody be in debt to him. But does that make sense? Good. So, um, so when we give, write this down, when we give to God's purposes, we're like a farmer planting seeds in anticipation of a future harvest, of a future harvest. And it's okay. It's okay to expect that God's going to send that back to you. And we'll talk about that in a few moments. It's also important to note that when you plant corn, you don't reap the harvest the next day. There's a season, there's a time period where something's going on. And that thing that's going on is something that you can't see. You can't see it. You have to trust that it's going on. The seed's beginning to to grow and uh, ultimately then to come up. So there's this time period. So a farmer, if he's unwise, might feel that as he sows the seed, he puts the seed out, he's really just losing seed. In the same way, because this is the illustration, when we plant into God's kingdom, we might initially feel that we're just losing what it is that we have. But as it goes on, one of the things we'll find is that the, the, the farmer always gives in anticipation of a future harvest. There's always that anticipation of that future harvest. If a, if a farmer plants few seeds, if he plants few seeds, then, then here's what happens. At the end of the time of planting, he will have more seeds in his barn. But the farmer who plants more seeds, not at the time that the planting ends, 
but at the harvest will have a great deal more seed in his barn. Did I say that right? And so we have to decide where we want to be in all of that. So the one who plants more at the time of the harvest will have more grain in his barn. So, so this leads us to this place, and write this down. Giving to God, giving to God's purpose is an act of faith. It's an act of faith. It's just like when you plant corn. You can't see something going on. Uh, you, you have to trust that something, but there's a harvest. You're trusting in a future harvest. And here's a verse, verse 7, that we're all very familiar with. Paul takes it to the next step, and he says this. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Underline that. For God loves a cheerful giver. Now it's important, he says, each one must do what, what he's purposed in his heart. This is not the support of the church, the, the local church, the local ministry. God speaks about that specifically. This is an offering that would be above that. And so for the offering above that, that's where we determine in our heart what it is that God wants to do. So this is above and beyond. But there's something here that, that I find very interesting. If you've been part of church for any length of time, you certainly know this. There on your outline where it says, God loves a cheerful giver, it says, for God loves a cheerful giver. The Greek word there for giver is the word hilaros. From where we get our English word? Hilarious, hilarious. And uh, that's what it means. God loves a hilarious giver. So the idea is that somebody says, what? God wants to do something? Absolutely. Let's do it. And, and, and you know, we, we give because we are hilarious givers. Now, why hilarious givers? I want you to write this down. Hilarious giving reveals what I really love. Hilarious giving reveals what I really love. You see, we can't give to God's purposes hilariously unless we really love them unless you really love them. You don't give hilariously to something unless you really love them. We always give over the top generously to the things that we love the most. And uh, guys, you'll know this to be true, and I'm sure it was the same for you, but when I was dating Cheryl, when, I, when we first started dating and, and throughout, whatever Cheryl wanted, Cheryl got. I, did, I couldn't care less. You want to go to this restaurant? We went to that restaurant. And uh, I was working at Calvary Fort Lauderdale. I was a minister on staff. I was making a whopping 10 bucks an hour. But, but if she said, I want to go here, I said, let's go. She says, Why, well, I want to do this. And, and I said, well, let's do it. And I couldn't care less because whatever she wanted, that's what she got. And I, I never said, well, uh, let me check the budget because I couldn't care. I, I was just, you know how we are. So, so whatever you want is whatever you get. I was in love. And, you know, I, I, and, I, and I love to be able to say that, that we were talking about this yesterday. Cheryl and I took a walk and I said, I hope that's still my heart. She says, it is. She says, you never say, no, we can't do that. I'm just, I, I personally don't care. If you want it, you get it. You know, if mom ain't happy. Ain't nobody happy. It's what the Bible teaches somewhere. And uh, if it doesn't teach it, we all know it, don't we? But I I love her, and so whatever she wants, I want her to have it. So I don't really care. You know, it's, 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 so I'm, I'm good with all of that. So not much has changed. But we always give over the top generously to whatever it is that we love the most. So here's a question that we need to answer today. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a hilarious giver. So here's the question. Am I a hilarious giver to God's purposes? Now, if, if, I'm, if I'm not, if I'm honest and I'm not, Jesus gives a very, very revealing truth. There in your outline, Here's what he says. 
He says, for, your, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Does everybody see that? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be also. Our checkbook always reveals where our heart is really at. Our checkbook always reveals that. Because your treasure is always where your heart is at. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. If our treasure is in our hobbies, that's where our checkbook is going to be. It has always been, it will always be. You and I live in a time period where many professing Christians, you and I live in a a time period where many professing Christians uh, have never put their heart in God's kingdom. Their heart has never been in God's kingdom. And the reason is because their treasure has never been there. Where you put your treasure reveals where your heart is. And so if you're here today and you say, that's me, I've never put my treasure in God's kingdom. The good news is you can change your heart. And the way that you change your heart is you change where you put your treasure. As you begin to deposit into God's kingdom, your heart begins to move in that direction because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So you can move your heart in that direction. So here God gives us, as we go on, his, his, his heart and his promise to us. We're going to pick it up in verse 8 of chapter 9. And he says, And God is able to make all grace bound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad and he gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. The idea is God scattered abroad and he still had more. He he never ran out. So when it says there on your outline, it says God is able to make all grace abound to you. Here's what I'm going to suggest. Write this down. There's no limit to how God can bless. There's no limit to how God can bless. This is all sufficiency in all things. We, we've been talking through, and, and one of the things we've noticed is that the Corinthians never put God first. Their heart, they, they liked the fact that God gave himself for them, but they never came to the place where they gave themselves back to God. And, and that showed up in how they responded to God. God calls us to respond to him. But, but let me share with you God's heart for you and I as his children. There on your outline it says, the Lord be magnified who delights in the, what's that word? prosperity of his servant. You see, it's the heart of the father for his child. If uh, you're, you're a parent here today and I were to say, how many of you here today, you have children and um, you're just hoping that they just get by barely financially in, in their lives. Anybody hoping that for your kids? What about this? Uh, you're a parent here today. You just hope that your kid goes from relationship to relationship, uh, difficult relationship time and time again, or, or is your, your heart that, no, they, they learn how to do relationships great. They get married one time. They live their life with that one person, and God blesses that. How many of you want that for your kids? Even if it didn't work out, you know, for, for us, we want that for our kids. See, the truth is, the heart of a parent is that we always want our kids to do a little bit better than we did. Where do you get that? Where do you get that? You get that from being created in the image of God. He wants that for his kids. And so that's where that comes from. So he delights in our prosperity. So it's, it's this, this 
uh, balance here. God's first, but God also wants to bless. But He's first. And, and that's where He wants to bring us to. So go ahead and write this down. A hilarious giver is persuaded that God is able and desiring to reward our giving. That's what he's talking about here. He's able and desiring to reward our giving. There's going to be a harvest that comes back. And then verses 10 and 11. I'm going to read verses 10 and 11 on our, on our outline. And then we'll give the punchline here. He says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So go ahead and write this down. Hilarious givers to God's purposes recognize God as the great supplier. He who supplies seed for the sower. One of the interesting things about this this, uh, sowing and reaping when the farmer goes out to plant, he plants a seed, but the idea is that enough crop is going to come up that he's going to be able to, first of all, feed his family. He's going to be able to probably help some other families get fed. He's going to be able to put God first. And at the end, he's going to have seed so that he can continue the process the next year. So the idea is God wants to multiply that so that continues on. So he supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. The harvest of your righteousness here refers to the giving. The harvest of your giving is the idea. This is what's going to happen. When he says made rich in every way, if you were to look at that in the original language, it means to be made wealthy. He's going to bless you. Now let let me say this. If you live in America, you are already wealthy. All you have to do is go on one missions trip and you will understand you are already wealthy. And uh, so it's, uh, we, we are. But when it says made wealthy in every way, I believe that's materially, spiritually, relationally. God wants to bless the whole of our lives. The whole of our lives. That's his desire. So the big question in this, and once you write this down, the big question for me is will I trust him? Will I trust him? I believe it all begins for us at a certain point in our life where we begin to develop some God stories. And uh, I remember when I was 25, I was in grad school, and it was the first time in my life I ever decided to put God first. And I was a broke grad student. For many of you who've ever been there, you, you know. And so God began to bless my life. And uh, so, so I had finished that graduate program, and I, then I was on to another one. And so where I was at when I was in seminary, I was called by my undergrad to come back and and teach for a semester in their psychology department. That was my original background. So I went in the psychology department of my undergrad college and I taught abnormal psychology and counseling psychology and I filled in for Psych 101. It was a lot of fun. And at the same time I was taking courses at, at the seminary. Well, it was in that time where the college was paying me a whopping 400 bucks a month. And, uh, my, my car died, and, and so I needed a car, and uh, my dad gave me, his, uh, gave me one of his uh, brand new Lincoln Town cars. It was Lincoln Town Car Signature Series, brand new. And um, so I had the car, and I had to, he paid for the gas and the insurance and everything. It was a wonderful deal. I, I highly recommend it. But, <laughs> but I, I had to maintain the car. So here I am, I'm teaching at this college, and I'm making a whopping $400 a month. 
at the end of the semester, summer's coming, the college comes to me and they say, hey, we'd like you, if you're interested, to go to six summer camps this summer, take a group of students with you in your car, travel around to all these states, stay at a summer camp, represent the college, speak at the colleges, uh, speak at the camps and, and do that. And I said, great, I'd love to. So, so I remember at that time looking at the car and uh, realizing that the tires on the car were completely bald at this point bald to the point where they're like strings sticking out, that kind of bald. And so I realized, uh, and I looked at the, the tires, and I said, Lord, you can make these tires go for another 100,000 miles, but I would really like it if you would give me brand new tires for this car so I could go on this trip with confidence that we're not going to have a blowout in the middle of nowhere. And so I, nothing happened. I prayed, Lord, Lord, you know. And so we come down to just a couple of days before the trip. And it's in that time where I had enough money to take the car and have it serviced. So I was driving the car to have it serviced. I had to leave it overnight. My sister's following me in her car as we're driving there. I'm praying, I'm like, Lord, you know, you always answer my prayers. I need this, and I'm not sure why. Is there something going on? And I had, I'm, I'm going to say, a vision. It wasn't really a vision, but God revealed something that it was from my past. I grew up watching my grandmother cook, and so I had this very vivid vision of my grandmother cooking at the stove. And what she would do at the stove is she'd have something that was on the back burner, and she'd put something that was on the front burner. Now, what was on the front burner would have her full attention, but then she would sometimes switch them so that what was on the back burner was kind of simmering there, but what was on the front burner had her full attention. Make sense so far? And so I see this, and I'm thinking, Lord, why, why did this just vividly pop into my mind? And it was there that the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and he reminded me of something. Several weeks before, God had sent me a chunk of money, and I had to take care of certain bills, and he spoke to me, and he said, I want you to take a certain portion of this, and I want you to send it to this ministry. And I said, okay, I'm going to do that. Well, this is in the late 80s. We didn't have internet. You still had me called somebody. You had to call long distance, that sort of thing. And so I I didn't, I didn't send the money. I didn't spend it. It was in a drawer at home. It was wrapped up, but I didn't send it. I meant to, but I just didn't do it. And, and God began to speak to me. And he says, Dan, I, you prayed, and I, I answered your prayer, and I put your need on my front burner. I told you I wanted you to do this, and you didn't spend the money, you didn't throw it away, but you put it on the back burner, and you never took care of it, and it's still sitting there. And I said, Lord, I'm, I'm so sorry. I will make sure that it's on the front burner. So I drop off the car that day and uh, hopefully get all the details right. We drive home. I get the money out of the drawer. I wrap it up. I put it in an envelope. I had to call on the phone long distance to get the address. Had to borrow an envelope. I had to borrow a stamp. I had to walk to a, a, a mailbox because the, you know, my car's in the shop and I had mail cash, which I know you don't do, but I was like, I'm, I'm on the front burner. So I did that. And I said, okay, Lord, front burner, it's done. I've done what you've said. Okay. Literally, the next day, my sister comes to pick me up. We go down to the Lincoln dealer. As I'm walking into the dealership, the manager comes running out. Mr. Plord, Mr. Plord, didn't you get my message? I said, no, I didn't get your message. He goes, here's what happened. So sorry to tell you, but last night, your car was the last car we were working on. So we had it up on the jack. And last night, somebody came over the fence and they stole the wheels and the tires off of your car. (laughs) Literally happened. And he said, so, so... I want you to know. He's like, don't get upset. He says, but, but we're going to replace those wheels and tires with brand new everything. Brand new. And, then he, and then he said, hey, you know, Mr. Plord, you need a new tire. <laughs> he really said that. So anyways, that was a God story that I couldn't put together. 
God called me to participate in that, and I did. And I've seen God through the years show up and show up and show up and show up. And there's no way I could put that together. That's a God thing where God says, I'm just going to show up. My heart for you today is the heart of Titus, who God placed it in his heart to help them. Not because he was going to get anything out of it, because he, he wasn't. But it's for the people. They needed this. And I believe that that heart comes from God. You need to participate in what it is that God is doing. If your heart's not in God's kingdom, if your finances aren't in God's kingdom, your heart's not there either. With that being said, let's move on very, very quickly. We have just a few seconds. Let me also say this is how this works. Um, sometimes somebody will say, well, I put God first, you know, and uh, nothing happened along the way. He says he supplied seed for the sower, and, uh, but nothing happened. Just remember that when he says I supply seed for the sower, here's what this means. The guy who goes out to plant, he's still got to get up in the morning. He's still got to get going. He's got to go out there. He's got to plant the seed. He's got to work the soil. He's got to till the soil. He's got to water the soil. He's got to pull some weeds. He's got to guard it against predators. He's got to do his part. And when he does his part, God does his part also by blessing it. So many people think, well, I put God first, nothing happened. Just remember, there's more. He still has to do his part, which is why here at Calvary we say, as Jesus taught, that God feeds the birds of the air. But he doesn't drop the worm off at the nest. They have to go get it. Do you agree with that? And that's the missing part for many people. Well, let's move on very quickly. I'll just read verse 12. He says, For the ministry of the service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing through many, overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Your gift is going to cause people to thank God because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. And I just want you to write down there, based upon that verse, verse 13, their their giving was evidence that God was working in them. It proved uh, their obedience to, to, uh, that accompanies the confession of the gospel. Verse 14, while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing greatness of God in you. And then he closes by saying, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The Corinthians were not participating because they forgot how indescribable God's gift was to them. We're out of time. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for, for your word, for your spirit, for the way that you grow us in you. We pray today that we would place you first in every area of our life. And part of that is, is participating in the things that you are doing. We want to represent you well in all things. Father, I pray that you would help us to take those steps transferring our heart into your kingdom. Keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.